You're listening to TIP. On this week's episode of the Investors Podcast, we have real estate expert and macroeconomist George Gammon. During the show, George and I talk about the structural impact that COVID is having on the American real estate market and infrastructure. In the second half of the show, we bring you important clips from billionaires Ray Dalio and Jeff Gunlock. Ray talks about the limits of central banking intervention and how people might want to position themselves based on those extreme policies. And then billionaire Jeff Gunlock talks about his opinions on the potential for a V-shaped recovery. As a final note, Stig was out of town and wasn't able to join me for the interview, but he'll be back with us again next week. So we're covering a lot of territory on today's show, so let's go ahead and hop to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish, and with me, George Gammon. George, welcome to the show. Thrilled to have you. Been been watching your Twitter feed and your videos from afar, so it's kind of exciting to have you here. Yeah, Preston, I am super, super excited. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so I cannot wait to dive in and give your viewers or your listeners as much value as possible. Well, George, where I want to start off, and I, I think we can talk about infrastructure, we can talk about real estate and kind of what the implications are in this COVID world that we're dealing with in this central banking uh, printing bonanza. So as a, as a person who has quite a bit of experience dealing with real estate, not only in the US, but internationally, I saw a video that you recently posted where you were saying that the, the prices that the real estate market is at today is very similar to a bubble that we saw in 2008. What is your, what's your basis for that? Sure. Well, it's really one chart. And it's a, a chart for home prices adjusted for inflation and size going back to 1900. And if you look at that chart, you see how dramatic of a bubble we were in in 2006. In fact, from 1900 to the late 1990s, the housing prices in the United States were flat, adjusted for size and inflation. And which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because they, you know, housing should be tied to wages, <laughs> among other things, and wages are loosely tied to inflation. But then in the early 2000s, you just see it just go parabolic, this chart straight up, you know, till we hit a peak in 2006 and comes crashing all the way down to 2012. But now in a lot of those markets, in fact, in, in many markets were higher than we were in 2006. So I don't know that there's anyone that would say we weren't in a housing bubble back then. So if we're in one back then, then how are we not in one now if prices, even uh, in real terms, in a lot of markets are higher? And then you look at the price to income ratios and a lot of other metrics like that. And it's just, um, I, I mean, it's staggering. But, but keep in mind that, that real estate is local and it's very inefficient. And that's the... That's the benefit of real estate where gold, as an example, or stocks, if gold is selling for $1,500 an ounce, you can't get someone to sell it to you for $900. It's not going to work that way. But with real estate, if you find a motivated seller, you could find someone to sell you their house for a 2012 price, especially if you know what you're doing. 
And then you take that to an extreme when you get into markets like Columbia that doesn't have an MLS or any of the Zillow or anything like that. And the market just gets even more inefficient. So the more inefficient the market is, the more that's going to benefit the people who understand and know what they're doing. But the more it's going to really hurt people that, that really don't have a lot of experience. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that you can't arbitrage the price like you can call it gold where you can you can physically move it. With real estate, you're not physically moving anything. <laughs> it's staying there. And so right. you know, that's such a huge component of it that you that you're hitting that. It's a downside to real estate for sure. And one of the things I've been thinking about recently is Chris Cole's paper, The Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent, where he outlines his dragon portfolio and I've, I've you know everyone always asks the question well okay i totally get it but how do you go long volatility and if, if you don't understand options or doing all those things so i've really been trying to think through how to go long volatility but i think some types of real estate could be kind of long volatility i don't know if you heard the interview that hugh hendry had with raul paul's real vision but it was fascinating to me because Hugh looked at looks at real estate from a macro, you know, as a macro hedge fund manager, really. And that's he bought this villa, this all his property in St. Bart's. And his rationale there was kind of to go long volatility. And Raul, same thing with his uh, place in Little Cayman. And so I, I think that I guess my point is. If you're trying to construct that type of portfolio, if you get outside the box, there could be some ways to do it through real estate. But to your point, if you don't know what you're doing and you buy it in the wrong jurisdiction, you don't have diversification, you you're, you got problems. Well, one of the interesting things that we have going on right now, and I don't know if this is a long-term trend, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. We've had a, an exodus from major cities call it New York, LA, we're seeing the prices for rent just drop significantly. Is this, is this short-term? Is this a long-term trend? What, what are your thoughts on that? My, my buddy, Jason Hartman's a, a real estate expert. And I'm always talking to him. In fact, I'm going to grab breakfast with him in the morning. And he called this a, a few months ago. He says, I think people are going to leave these high density urban areas and really start moving out to the suburbs and we've seen that play out. And I think that just with my little YouTube thing that I'm doing as a, as a kind of a side hobby, when we first started, I, I had all my employees or editors and whatnot working out of a central office. But then when COVID came, we went into lockdown. I was in Medellin, Colombia. They had to work from home. So we figured out how to do that. So now I'm in Fort Lauderdale. I'm going to the Caribbean uh, next week. We just keep going right where we left off because everyone's accustomed to working from home. We'll never go back. Even if I'm in Medellin, we'll never go back to working in an office. It's like, it's pointless. Uh, and we figured out how to do it and do it potentially even better through the internet. And I think a lot of businesses in the United States are going to do the same thing. The businesses that are able to adjust. Another thing, Preston, that I just heard the other day is how many universities aren't going back to school in the fall. A lot of them are just going to, uh, I forgot, maybe one month in, and then they're just saying, okay, the rest of the year is just online. 
So a lot of these students are moving out of these college towns like Tucson, as an example, where they got U of A and they're just moving back in with their parents. Uh, they're, they're just moving out of the cities or just going back to wherever they have a lower cost of living. They don't have to worry about COVID or whatever. And they're just doing their classes from home. So that's just going to have a massive economic impact on those local communities from the standpoint of, of the rents, the restaurants, all the services, the bars, the cafes, the shops. And I think that is something it's like the Titanic, right? Once it starts, you might be able to move it, but it's going to take a long time to turn that boat around. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm thinking of like, and, and you get to some of these schools that are downtown and some of these really big cities. And you think of that population of the student body not being there, really having no incentive to come back. The fact that these schools are, if they force the students to come back, they now have a liability on their hands that if these students would then catch COVID and let's just say, God forbid, some of them die or whatever the circumstances, even the medical expenses, if they are able to kick it, they could turn back to the school and hold the school liable because they're saying, well, you forced me to be here when I didn't when you clearly demonstrated last semester that I didn't need to be here. And so I think what we're exactly. we're seeing all these schools that are now making it optional. And I mean, come on, if you're a student and you don't want to live in downtown, downtown DC or downtown New York, uh, I mean, I'm not paying for that room and board any anymore, <laughs> not trying to. So now these schools are stuck with this infrastructure. So talk to us, like, what do, what do these schools do with this infrastructure? What do these businesses do with this infrastructure? I mean, I think the businesses, I, I think you're going to have a lot of problems. I mean, there's yeah. going to be bankruptcies. There's going to be foreclosures. It's going to fall potentially on the banks. I mean, I think inevitably the, the Fed will bail them out. Yeah. But um, but but see, there it goes back to the same argument that uh, that Brent's been having. Brent Johnson has been having with the swap lines and that it, it doesn't really bail out these countries or these entities because it's not a liquidity problem, a solvency problem. Yes. And it's the exact same thing what we're talking about. It's, it's not the fact that the Fed can just give them some sort of Main Street, whatever four letter alphabet soup program will give them a loan. Or, or even um, alone, they didn't have to pay back. But it's that those those students aren't coming back. That business isn't going to come back next year or the year after. So that, that's a cash flow issue. That's a solvency issue. And if you don't have the, the cash flow coming in, you're just throwing good money after bad. And I don't see how that uh, – that fixes itself anytime soon. Also, too, when you have a lot of social unrest, I mean, I've been out of the United States, thank goodness, for almost a year. So I've just kind of been watching from afar what's been happening with these riots and looting. And But I mean, if you're someone someone that's living downtown New York or in Chicago or, or any of these you know high density urban areas, people, I think, will most likely start moving out suburbs and maybe even a little bit further because they're, you know, maybe it's time I should move to some place where if I had to, I could grow some of my own food. I could have just an RV and you, you might see a big transition towards that type of lifestyle. I think we're kind of already moving there with a lot of the millennials and this might just, uh, this might just bring it on that much faster. And we've talked to numerous guests about similar ideas and, and how all this is playing out with these central banks. And 
the thing that our audience just screams for is like, well, where do I go? Where do I go with my money? And the answer always comes back to something scarce, gold, you name it, right? But when I look at how some stocks have performed for this year, 2020, the NASDAQ is making new all-time highs. And when we really peel into that and, and dig into, well, what companies are actually driving that? It's FANG. It's the FANG yeah, stocks that are yeah. driving all this. So talk to us about your opinion on people that are investing in some of these FANG stocks. Well, first of all, I think there are some things that are cheap. I think commodities are very cheap right now. And I think that's interesting. And if you get outside of the United States, I think there's some opportunities for, for value investors in just traditional types of stocks. But you, you've got to do some you've got to do some homework. So it goes back to starting with the question of is it cheap? Is it expensive? And this is what I preach nonstop on my channel, in the comments, uh, on my Twitter feed. I see so many people, well, their starting point is asking the question, is it going to go up or down in price? Or is the market going to go up or down? That's their starting point. And when they start with that, they just try to figure it out. But, but think about it. I mean, you know this as well as I do, that no one can time the market and no one can predict tops and bottoms. Nobody. But, but for some reason, as human beings, we're just driven to start at the, at the question. So as an example, going back to the FANG stocks, people would say, well, my gosh, I've made a killing in Facebook or in Netflix, whatever. And so I made the right decision. But that takes me back to my days playing blackjack. And that's what I did when I first started off as an entrepreneur. And it really, really helped me. But uh, just using an example that I think most people can understand, it's like you and I, Preston, are at a blackjack table. And, you know, we've had a few drinks. We're playing there. I know what I'm doing. You might not know what you're doing. And you get a, a 19. And you say, you know, what? I've had a few drinks. I'm feeling lucky. I'm going to hit on this 19. And I say, whoa, 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 Preston, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. That the, the odds are not in your favor. And you say, oh, forget you, George. You're just too conservative. Have some fun. Live a little. And the dealer hits. You get a two. You get blackjack. And you turn around and look at me and say, see, if I would have listened to you, I would have missed out on all these gains. It's like the people that buy the Fang stocks or buy Tesla or something like that. Well, if I. If, you know, look at you're crazy. Tesla's at twelve hundred a share, and if I wouldn't have bought it, I would have missed out on all these gains. Right? But that you're 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 going against the probabilities. And although you may have made money, if you continue to do that long term over the next ten years, over the next twenty years, you will go bust. It's inevitable. So it goes back to the question. And some people have different answers for this. So going, uh, excuse me, going back to the, the blackjack table, did Preston, in our example, do the right thing? Did he make the right decision? He got blackjack. You see, some people would say, yeah. And, and everyone that's saying that you should have bought FANG stocks would say, yes, he should have hit because he, he made money. He, he made the right decision. Where I would say, and I think Ben Graham and Warren Buffett, <laughs> every other value investor out there, would say no. He, he should not have hit on twenty one. He, uh, you know, even though Preston won, he made the wrong decision. And if people could just remove the outcome from their decision making process, I think they would be so much better investors. And blackjack, 
You don't care if you win or lose a hand. It's irrelevant. You have to divorce yourself from even having an emotional attachment to that. You just make sure that you play every hand correctly based on the probabilities. I personally would rather lose money on a stock knowing that I made the right decision from a, prob- uh, from a probability standpoint than make money on a stock knowing that I just got lucky. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So George, we've talked a little bit about just they're not really being a sound money right now and that the central bankers are printing like crazy around the world. There's just total debasement. Do you think that what we're seeing in FANG stocks is a result of market participants looking at those companies and saying, these assets that these companies own are not going to be impaired. These things are going to be around for decades because they're and they're also intangible in many cases where they don't have a lot of capital expenses like the infrastructure stuff we were talking about earlier. They definitely have infrastructure, but not 
to the tune of like uh, Tanger outlets and things like that on a revenue per you know tangible asset basis. Um, so when they're looking at these fang companies and they're saying, hey, these are in, a lot of intangible assets sitting on their balance sheet. They're companies that are going to be around for a while. They're they're highly technical. They're at the forefront of artificial intelligence. Why don't why don't I just treat that like sound money? And why don't I just own that and and bid the price? And there's and they just keep piling into it. Do you think that that's what market participants are doing by by bidding those Fang stocks? Is that how they're viewing it, or do no. you think it's just total exuberance? No, I think you're giving them way too much credit. I don't think there's any relationship. <laughs> whatsoever in the stock market today and fundamentals or the real economy. I, I think they're completely removed. And it's, it's, it's sad to say that, but it's all about liquidity. It's all about capital flow. And I think that the reason these FANG stocks are going up is because these pension funds have to get yield. Yeah. And the Fed has starved them of yield for so long that I mean, put yourself in the position of, of a pension fund manager. What, what are you going to do? You're 50% un, underfunded, like CalPERS, as an example, and you've got to somehow come up with a 7% return. And that's just to meet your obli- uh, your original obligations if you were 100% funded. I mean, they've got to make like, who knows, 10, 15% compounded returns over the next who know, you know, 10, 15 years. I'm not sure but that forces them to go further and further out the risk curve. And it's not just with the the FANG stocks. I mean, they're levering up to go into the FANG stocks. They're levering up to go go into private equity. It has nothing to do with fundamentals. They're just looking around saying, how on earth can we possibly achieve this objective? And this is the only way we can do it. So we might as well just throw a Hail Mary and just pray for the best and then hope the Fed bails us out. We have a Fed put. I think now we have a government put. And they're just hoping, man, maybe if they do so many stimulus packages and we get uh, all these Davy Day traders that take their stimulus checks and start a Robinhood account and go into the stock market, lifting up the FANG stocks, maybe that'll bail out the pension funds. I think that's their only game plan. Well, so, it, so that's what we've seen to date. And when we look at what... I expect them to do moving forward. I'm, I'm real curious to hear what your expectation for them moving forward is. It seems like we're just going to have more of the same, which would cause it to just keep going up, I guess, right? For these FANG stocks. What, what are your thoughts on how much more money are they? I mean, globally, the number I've seen is around $5 trillion globally, and it's still accelerating. Well, how much more do you think we're going to see by year's end? And then what impact is that going to have on the equity market if they would do another 5 to $10 trillion before the end of the year? Yeah, well, I want to be clear for everyone. Uh, it's not that I'm really a stock market bull or bear. I mean, fundamentally, obviously, I'm a huge, huge bear. But I, I can argue for the stock market going up. I can... On one day, the next day, I can argue for it going down. Same thing with the dollar. So if you're asking me to argue for the stock market to go up, I think you got to look right at the TGA. And Luke touched on this in your interview with him and Grant the other day, and I thought that was fantastic. And I talked to him about it the other day on my show. And uh, I think he was saying it was 1.6 back a few weeks ago when he was talking to you. And now it's up over 1.7, I believe. And that's the bazooka 
that I think the administration is going to come in and spend into the economy through call it a second round of, of stimulus packages, and that's going to increase M2 money supply. That's the one thing that Fed can't do by printing bank reserves is directly affect M2. So the TGA, the Treasury, can spend that money into the economy. That increases M2, and it increases bank reserves, which is basically like doing $1.6 trillion of quantitative easing within a matter of two months. And if we go back to the, ra- the last round of stimulus checks, Night, they what they did. Uh, CNBC did a study that showed that the income bracket between thirty five thousand and seventy five thousand, their uh, levels of trading increased ninety percent the week after they got their stimulus check. So the, everyone's looking at this and seeing all these people, all these quote unquote gurus on YouTube, making all this money with their rented Lamborghinis, and they're just playing with the house's money. Say, well, why not? Why not buy? you know, hurts when it's bankrupt. I can get it pennies when I think the Fed's going to come and bail them out. Why not just take a flyer? It's this, almost the same type of mentality that you have with the with the pension funds, right? But the, the, the Fed is, is shooting them out. But an, another thing that I think people need to realize about these, uh, what's proposed for the next round of stimulus, they're going so far as to giving people $4,000 tax credit just for taking a vacation. Yeah, the TRIP, of course, I mean, obviously, you can't think of a. Only the government could think of a, a name like that. You know, just trying to use some sort of PR to push it through. But yeah, they're giving people, or they're proposing to give people a four thousand dollar tax credit to take a vacation, and they're giving their kids five hundred dollars a head. This is part, of, you know, part of this potential stimulus package. So, you know, c- could it be nine trillion? Could it be ten trillion? I mean, who knows how big this thing is? Especially when you add in the fact that I think the new, this latest round of unemployment and stimulus is just going to turn into UBI. I think yeah. it's going to turn into a permanent UBI for sure. Yeah. And so, so you combine that with the TGA from now until the election, and you know darn well that any administration is going to try to buy votes by boosting the economy and the stock market prior to the election. But I think the Trump administration for sure is going to be willing to do that. So you got 1.6 coming in from the TGA. You got who knows how much coming in from additional spending from this next stimulus round. And what percentage of that flows into the market? Another problem here, too, Preston, is humans have recency bias. And they they think that whatever has happened over the past couple months is just going to happen indefinitely. And all of their buddies got rich by, quote unquote, buying the dip back in March. So if we have another dip that goes down slightly prior to, let's say, all of this uh, quantitative easing, all this liquidity come in, everyone is going to think that, oh, my gosh, all my buddies got rich back in March. I can't miss the boat this time. And they're just going to pile all of that money into the market. And you could see it going to 40000 And again, I'm not saying that it will. It's always about probabilities. There are no certainties whatsoever. And I'm not saying that's my base case, but I, I could, I think there's, you could argue for it for sure. Well, and even if we would, so you just walk the dog on and on the market going even higher, which I think is a very real possibility. 
And I think if we would talk through the market going lower because they hadn't added enough stimulus to keep this thing propped up and it starts to go through that bust, I think undoubtedly the government's stepping in and printing double, triple, whatever they did back in, in the March timeframe, March, April timeframe, right? Like you, I don't know how they could possibly let it go into a deflationary spiral like we had in the 1920s. 1930. They they might not have a choice because if you look at Japan, Japan is, I mean, they own 60% of the bond market. They were kind of Japan 2.0 and their market still went down. So it's definitely possible. And Jeff Snyder points that out all the time. Another thing too, the Fed can do quantitative easing infinity. They can commit a trillion dollars a day in the repo market. They can do all of these programs, but they still kind of rely on a third party to get the money into the real economy. The government doesn't. The government can spend it directly into the real economy, but still they need people to take an action. If people just saved the money or if people didn't go into stocks, then the market could crash. So until the government, and I I would not put this past them, but until the government and the Fed start buying stocks directly, there's they're still having to rely on the commercial banking system on the the public in order to do their bidding so we we kind of have built up a pavlov a pavlovian response to the fed doing quantitative easing that means the market goes up up but it doesn't necessarily have to 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 do that and um i again i i would encourage people to look at jeff snyder's work on this where he shows the fed's balance sheet uh going back to 2008 and compares that to the stock market and there's not a direct correlation there at all it's more of a of a a a psych a psychological approach and that's why the fed always tries to talk the market higher and they they don't have that many tools to do it directly. That said, I definitely think in the future, if the f- market went down by called another 20, 25%, they would come in and start buying equities. And mm-hmm. who knows, the, the government might as well. Last question for you, George. Who are two or three people that you just follow like a hawk on Twitter or any type of platform that you that you really capture a ton of value from well maybe not on twitter but it's definitely going to be uh, milton friedman thomas soul and jim rogers uh, that's for sure but there's so many people Preston. i mean i would throw your podcast in there macro voices jeff snyder and emil kalinowski two of my real good buddies they just came out with a new show on youtube making sense that they turned into a podcast there's so much content out there that's absolutely amazing and i think we're going into a time right now that re- regardless of what your belief system is on the fed or value investing anything like that it's it's we're going into uncharted waters that's for sure and i think that people can either be educated or they're going to be a victim and i would just much rather have your entire audience and try to encourage people to be educated because there's no reason not to be right now with all of the amazing content that's out there but as far as some of the books too of course you know intelligent investor all, all your uh 
listeners, I'm sure, read that. But also the Market Wizards books really, really helped me. And that's the first thing that turned me on to Jim Rogers was his interview that he had with Jack Schwager in the original Market Wizards books, where he talks about buying Germany, and he talks about all of these things that he did back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that uh, really help you understand that mindset of buying things when they're unloved. And um, right now, the only thing that I think is unloved in the United States really is commodities. George, give, give folks a handoff to where they can learn more about you. Sure. You could just type in my name to Google. It's George, typical spelling, G-A-M-M-O-N is the last name. You can find me at Twitter. You can find me on YouTube, georgegammon.com, anything like that, and I'll pop up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Love the chat. Uh, Hopefully we can do this again in, in the future, George. I look forward to it. Okay. At this point in the show, I want to transition over to two renowned investors, Ray Dalio and Jeff Gunlock. Both of them are billionaires. Many people will tell you that Ray Dalio is one of the best investors alive today. And so the first clip that I'm going to play for you was uh, Ray talking about uh, how far central banks are willing to go. Like, what are their limitations? How are they going to respond based on this scenario we're seeing right now? This response was recorded in July of 2020. So give this a listen. Central banks are willing to go and and need to go as far as it takes in order to keep the system afloat. And because we're in the late, this late stages where we have a lot of debt, um, you are going to see central banks balance sheets um, explode. They, 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 they have to because the choice is the sinking ship. Um, I've studied um, the rises and decline of reserve currencies because I, I think we're at a, um, a key moment. I studied the rise and decline of the Dutch Gilder, the rise and decline of the British pound, the rise and decline of currencies throughout history. And uh, the track record um, is a perfect track record. Uh, When the time comes where uh, you're faced with political disruptions, is there enough money? Um, there There will be enough money. The question will be what the value of the money is and how far they can go. What are the limits to that? The limiting factor has to do with the demand for that money and debt. In other words, uh, what debt is, a bond, is a promise to receive a lot of currency. And so when it gives no good return or a bad return, and there's a printing of a lot of currency, clearly it's not desirable relative to other things for private investors. However, the central bank um, can buy it too. And so the limit has to do with the limit of demand. And that limit of demand has to do with the central bank's purchases of that because they can buy it and and hence there's no problem. Um, So you look at periods of time of where in history, where was the most of it that has ever taken place? And, And to try to define the limits. And uh, the war years was an example. Uh, I think the most analogous period we're in now uh, was 1930 to 1945. I'll explain the various ways that it was analogous, but more importantly, I'd like to deal with the question of the limits. And so you first had the Depression, 
And in that depression, and when you hit zero interest rates, you had the printing of money and the buying of financial assets. And then you had a lot of uh, fiscal policy. So programs that produce large deficits, which then were monetized by more of that. And then you went into the war years and the war years, very similar to now in terms of the need for a lot of money and credit, produced an enormous amount of money and credit, but it was managed by the central bank in a way where they were de facto taking that on. And it produced, it it was a good example of testing the limits of that. Now we went into periods where, um, you know, what is an alternative source of wealth? And as I say, it could be stocks, gold, it could be other assets. Those became the, the boundaries. What would happen in terms of this limit is if something transpired where the dollar as a reserve currency, um, the the holders outside, um, made another market that was uh, a better market. It could could be gold, it could be stocks, um, but, uh, or it could be an alternative currency, um, like like we're in the earlier session, which I listened into, Uh, uh, China as a reserve currency, there will need to be uh, an alternative process. When that happens, um, and I think it will happen, then it looks like a currency defense. What I mean by currency defense is if money uh, leaves that asset, if those who are holding bonds don't want to hold the bonds because they have lousy returns and they're printing a lot of money and they want to go to something else, and that starts to accelerate, should that happen, then what that does is, it, uh, as money leaves, it puts the central bank in the position of having to decide whether it buys more bonds in order to fill in that gap, or it lets interest rates rise. Well, they can't let interest rates rise. There's, there's, there's too much debt, and then also interest rates rising means that the Asset prices all go down and it's too vulnerable. So like all currency defenses, what it means is that they then have to accommodate that. And the act of accommodating that in and of itself is a big problem. Should that happen, um, that would be um, that would be terrible for the United States. Earlier, I heard about the discussion of the privilege. Um, That's right. The United States dollar. Um, is a tremendous privilege. And we are uh, certainly pushing the limits of that. And if we were to think that the dollar was to be any other currency because of us pushing the limits, if that were to happen, it would be uh, probably the, you know, the biggest uh, disruptor, not only to the markets, but to the whole world geopolitical systems. All right. So Ray, discussed a lot of other things in in this uh, particular uh, interview that he was doing. One of the things that I found interesting is the question came up, well, where do you go with your money? How do you invest? Where do you put it? And this is how Ray responded. Um, Think of it this way. You you don't want cash because, um, and I don't think you want bonds, because you get no interest rate. You get a negative real rate, so you get taxed at that negative real rate. And then, um, so from a holding point of view, it's, it's, it's got no return. And then the central bank's going to print plenty more of it and produce its supply. 
So there's a move to what is a storehold of wealth. You know, think about it, you know, like all of us. What is a good storehold of wealth? And if you look at history through times, it's basically almost the reciprocal of the value of money. And and we see that from financing. You know, when you think um, a company or an individual thinks I can borrow money at this level and I can lend it at that level or I can buy my stock back at that level, you see that kind of movement. And so through history sees that uh, there are different storeholds of wealth that are basically almost the mirror image or the reciprocal of the value of money. And so that storehold of wealth is equities. In other words, um, if you were to think about uh, certain types of equities that are not, let's say, economically sensitive, but if you just buy a company and, and so on, and you think it's the reciprocal of that, and you think that the, and you realize that they have to put liquidity in the system, um, then it, it's equities, it's gold, it's, it, it is what is the thing that is the reciprocal of the value of money that you have to hold your, you know, your wealth in. All right. So uh, that's the comments that I wanted to play from Ray Dalio. Now I'm going to play some comments from Jeff Gunlock. Uh, Jeff's specialty is fixed income, as many people are aware. Uh, but he was asked a question about whether we were going to have this V-shaped recovery that everyone keeps talking about. And uh, this was Jeff's response. Well, my baseline scenario is that a V-shaped recovery, so-called, is highly optimistic. And I don't even think really plausible. What it, what it basically implies is that you can take 20% of the entire workforce, the labor force in the United States, and put them in jeopardy, um, put them on unemployment benefits, have them produce nothing, and instead receive money that's being lent by the Federal Reserve to, to buy the bonds, and that you could do that and nothing bad happens and nobody gets hurt. It just doesn't seem very likely to me that you can have that type of hardship uh, uh, roll over the economy and you just, uh, it's like nothing happened. You know, it's like the serve pro economy, like it never even happened. And I just don't believe that. So when I was, when, when I finally started, to, well, I shouldn't say finally, when I first started uh, worrying about the COVID-19 being a real thing, which was uh, in, in March, in like the first week of March, I did an interview and I was asked, what do you think about this virus thing? And I said, you know, I, I don't know what the consensus viewpoint is about how bad this is going to get and what the damage is going to be to the system. But whatever that consensus view is, I want to take the over. That it's going to be worse than that. And when it comes to the economic outlook going forward here from July 1st, by the way, welcome to the third quarter and second half of 2020. I'm glad the first half is over. Um, I think that whatever the consensus is on the so-called shape of the recovery, I'm taking the under. I think that you cannot have this type of economic disruption and fear that has been instilled in people's psyches. I, I don't think there's a good appreciation for how much economic fear there is. I can well imagine the people that were making you know, $70,000 a year and they suddenly got furloughed or laid off and they look in their bank account and they're hoping to see something there. But unfortunately, there was no magic genie that showed up and deposited money and their balance is still $5. And so they suddenly are looking into an economic black hole. And I think that's a really major jolt to the psyche of those people. And I have a feeling 
that there's going to be more of that that goes on. Um, as I said, these programs roll off, so some of the people are going to start getting economic angst about that. But beyond that, I believe that the people who are making $100,000 to maybe $150,000 might be at risk also in another wave of layoffs because those people also don't really have any savings by and large, but also the government is unlikely, I think, to come to the rescue for those types of people quite as readily as they did for people who are living more paycheck to paycheck in a real literal kind of sense. And it just seems to me that this, this economic situation from a jobs and wages perspective is fundamentally deflationary. We have all of these people that are, uh, are working and are at risk. And you might decide through work at home and other things that there's more efficient ways of doing things than what we did prior to February of 2020. And I could see that there could be a round of middle management layoffs that come around because people uh, might be revealed for not being that productive when you're doing work at home. It's more easy actually to tell, at least for me, it's more easy for me to tell who's really doing work because who's responding to the emails, who's really contributing to the team's meetings and all that sort of thing. And I just think that uh, companies will realize that there's a, they can right-size with the knowledge they've gained through this pandemic. And so we, we could see people who are making $120,000 a year and have de minimis savings, if they get red, uh, pink slipped, they're going to be in a real panic because there's not a lot of jobs open. They'll probably have a lot of company in people that are in that position. And that will put downward pressure on these wages. Also, we also know that the economy is going to be unevenly affected. We know that big cities are likely to suffer an exodus. We know that prices on apartments and homes in the San Francisco area are declining. We know that's also happening relative to Manhattan real estate. And that means that other parts of the country are going to start to see uh, perhaps inflow of population. We've been tracking at Double Line kind of the the showings, the the requests for showings of homes in various parts of the country, and it's very uneven. Uh, There are parts where they're more suburban-like. I mean, it's a reversal of the trend that we had uh, a decade ago. And so there'll be an uneven type of type of effect to the economy. The other thing that's going to happen that isn't has been talked about nearly enough is the states are really in trouble. The tax revenue from the states has completely collapsed, and uh, it's unlikely to improve. And so a lot of these states are going to be looking for, or some of them already asked for, more government bailouts. So there's a long queue of entities that want or need government bailouts, and that's just going to keep further pressuring uh, the, the situation. So uh, I think the, the economy is going to feel the, blow, the, the effects of the recession that we're in now for quite some time to come. I think it's very unlikely that we'll get back to our peak economic growth, even in 2021. All right. Well, that's all we have for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. I really appreciate everyone joining us and hopefully some of the comments that George Gammon and I had and then some of the things we played from uh, billionaires Jeff Gunlock and Ray Dalio have helped you guys piece some of this very complex and very confusing puzzle together. So with that, we look forward to seeing you guys next week.